you want to open your Bible with me tonight to the book of Galatians and Ephesians, you'll have those texts in the outline that was handed to you as well. Uh, but we're going to read from Galatians 4 and Ephesians chapter 1 as we look together uh, tonight at the doctrine of adoption. Uh, it is a multifaceted uh, doctrine. There's no way in the world we can um, do justice to the totality of the, uh, the doctrine. But tonight I want to focus on the central, I think, uh, um, message of this doctrine and the central impact, um, the, in a sense, the payoff. Why does this matter? And um, we'll be looking at, at those things tonight. So Galatians chapter 4 and then Ephesians chapter 1. Let's pick it up. Galatians chapter 4. I'll be reading Galatians 4 verse 4 through 7. Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And then Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians, chapter 1. Picking up the last part of verse 4. The last two words, actually. Uh, let's just start at verse 3. Let's get in context. Here we go. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Our God in heaven, we are here tonight to be taught by the Spirit of God who has been given to lead and guide us in truth, not into the truth simply as an intellectual exercise, but, Lord, an experiential understanding of your love for us in Jesus Christ. I pray that the, the wonder of the gospel would be so rich um, and purifying and um, comforting and encouraging and strengthening tonight. Uh, we pray all this, Lord, because it is your desire to give us these good gifts in Jesus, and so we pray it in his name. Amen. <clears throat> if you want to um, have your heart, um, well, just really wounded, uh, take some time to go online and spend some time reading stories of orphans and what life is like living in an orphanage. Uh, the London Telegraph this past week posted testimonies of adults who uh, looked back, they had grown up as orphans and, and just reflected back on uh, their life as children and how that affected them uh, today as adults. Uh, one, of the, one of the most uh, the common recurring themes was uh, these people testified how difficult it was for them to receive love, how hard it was to be in um, comfortable, in intimate, loving relationships. Uh, one lady who's now 60 years old, uh, divorced, 
I confess love has always been a tough thing for me to recognize. I can't trust it, and I expect to be abandoned. Another lady lost her mother when she was young, and then when she was 14, her father committed suicide. And so she said the authorities decided it was a time to put me in a foster home so that I could still have some sort of a family. And she said, I was I showed up at the door uh, trembling in my boots. I was so nervous, but it was a loving family. They had six children already of their own, and they tra- treated me like one of their own. But she said, I... I lived with them for six months and then decided to go back to the boarding house. And the reason she gave was I couldn't let them love me. I couldn't let them love me. When the, when the mother would try to come close, I pushed her away. That's very, very sad. If you think about the things that make life uh, rich and meaningful, it is being in loving relationships. Nothing really else comes close. And, and what a tragedy when people are unable uh, to be there in the reality of a loving relationship. One of the greater tragedies, maybe you could say, is that there are many Christians who live this way in terms of their relationship uh, to God. Uh, They believe in God. They are striving to live the Christian life. But their sense of failure and sin and inadequacy and shame uh, makes them doubt that God could ever really love them. It seems to us, I think, sometimes more comfortable just to live with our failure rather than to actually receive God's love. We're, we're, at least we're comfortable living uh, with guilt. Uh, but to, to, to really embrace and receive God's love is threatening in some way. And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe uh, if, I, if I ask you to describe your relationship to the Lord, uh, you might use a lot of terms, but, but loving and intimate would not be two of the words uh, that you would use. Well, that's what this doctrine of adoption is, is meant to answer and help us with. You see, the, one of the wonderful things about the doctrine of adoption is that it doesn't seem to serve any purpose other than to convince us of the love of God and the incredible privilege and status that belong to us as the children of God. There's nothing in the doctrine of adoption itself that is inherently necessary to our salvation. And I think you could point to all the other steps in the Ordo Salutis, the doctrine of salvation, as being necessary if uh, sinners who are dead in their sin and need to be reconciled to a holy God, it's all necessary. The doctrine of election is necessary. We would never choose God. He would have to choose us. The doctrine of effectual calling is necessary. We would never willingly come unless God sovereignly drew us to himself. The doctrine of justification is necessary. We must be made righteous by the imputed uh, righteousness of Jesus Christ if we're going to be fit for heaven, the home of righteousness. The doctrine of sanctification is necessary. We must be made in the likeness of Christ. If we have to bear the family resemblance, it's what the Holy Spirit is at work doing. All of these things are necessary. But, but there's nothing inherently necessary. There's no inherent necessary reason for God to make us his children. He could have easily saved us without adopting us. So why did he? I think the answer is to convince us that he loves us. 1 John 3 verse 1, the, the apostle whom 
that Jesus loved, says, Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. What manner of love is this that the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God? It's about the love of God. You see, the, the Father does not want you to experience your salvation simply in terms, forensic terms, of being forgiven or justified, made right with God. But he wants you to experience uh, your salvation as a, a matter of being profoundly loved by God and claimed by God and owned uh, by God, him as your heavenly Father and you as his precious Dearly beloved child. That is the experience of a Christian. So John Stott, I believe, says that Father is the Christian name for God. And all that that means. Tonight we're going to just look at first the foundation of our adoption and then the, the fountain from which it flows and then the fruit that we receive from it. The foundation, first of all, then, is the electing love of God. Paul says, in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. And we, and we can't just quickly pass over those words. They're there on purpose. They're essential to the doctrine. Uh, Paul wants us to, to know that our adoption is rooted not only in sovereign election, God's own eternal purposes, but it, it's rooted in a sovereign election that itself is rooted in an eternal love. It matters to God that, that you know that in love he predestined, in love he chose. He, he chose you according to the purpose of his will. He wanted to do this. And, and if you ask, well, why did he want to, to choose me? And the, the biblical answer is because he loved you. He chose you because he loved you. You see, that's a, that's a very comforting. There, there are Certain questions, and maybe some of you uh, were adopted, and, and adopted children can be tempted um, to ask questions when they start to realize that they're not exactly like the other members of the family. Maybe they have different color skin. Maybe they have a different build, a different temperament. And, and they start to ask, do, do I really belong in this family? Am I really a member? Do my parents love me as much as they love the other kids? And those questions can plague Christians as um, maybe you have that nagging sense of being an imposter that if, if people really knew what you were like, they'd vote you out of the herd. If they really knew uh, what goes on in your mind and, and in your heart and things that you say and do, well, they'd probably ask you to leave the family. I mean, after all, you look around and you see other, other Christians who are so much more Christ-like. They just look more like Jesus. Is it, are you really one of God's kids? Do you really belong? Think about the Christians who are being persecuted willingly for their faith. I just look at them and marvel. Or people who are deeply godly and gracious and gentle and kind and loving and exude joy and confidence in, in God. I think it, it, it's easy for me to believe that God would love them. But it's, it's hard to think that God could love someone like me like that. Well, how do you resolve those nagging doubts? Too often we try to resolve it by just saying, I'll, I'll try harder. I'll try to do better. And that's never the answer. 
Uh, the answer is to lay hold of this doctrine, this truth, that, that you are part of the family not by accident. Not by even some natural biological process. You're not part of the family because you were raised in a Christian home. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you are part of the family of God by sovereign election rooted in eternal love. The Heavenly Father came looking for you on purpose because he loved you. Russell Moore in his book on adoption says, the doctrine of election tells us that all who have come to know Christ are here on purpose. God was looking for us. You see, there are no natural born children of God, are there? Jesus Christ is the the only true son of God. And and other than that, there are no natural born sons. There are only adopted sons and adopted daughters. But because you see you've been adopted by sovereign election and in eternal love, it means that you're not a Christian by accident and your presence in the family of God is, is due to something so profound and deep and resonating with eternal glory. And, and that means that you have a place at the family table. You belong to the family of God. Because, because the, the sovereign electing love that brought every single person here has also brought you here. And that same love is, is promised to guide and guard and, and grace your life today. So don't ever doubt your place in the family of God. The Father has chosen you to be his very own child. And Paul tells us that this happened, uh, founded on God's sovereign election, but through Jesus Christ. And in order to understand the wonder of this, it helps to just get a better sense of the nature of our orphan status. Orphans today, and their estimates are that there are 8 million of them, orphans today are people who have lost their parents, either because their parents have passed away or because their parents have given them up. But children don't ask or volunteer to go to orphanages. They end up there, they are victims of circumstances beyond their control. Well, that is not exactly how it happened with us. Uh, We are told in the scripture that uh, God made uh, man, Adam and Eve, as his children. Adam is called a son of God in uh, the genealogy of Luke chapter 3. But Adam and Eve proved to be rebellious children and and, and, uh, denying God and making alliances with the devil. They lost their sonship status and privilege. And that now has become, you see, our story. Adam was not uh, orphaned uh, because he was a victim of circumstances outside of his control. He's he's an orphan spiritually because of his rebellion. And the same for you and and me. That we are uh, Adam's children by nature and and, and by choice. And so we are not victims of circumstances outside of our control. But we we are spiritual orphans by our own doing. We chose this. And that's what makes the gospel so amazing. Because when Paul says we are predestined for adoption through Jesus Christ, he wants us to think about and to see, to to remember the price paid for our adoption. The price being the Son of God offered up for us. And so Galatians, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, made man, born under the law to live under the obligations of the covenant of works, and to redeem those who are under the law. To to redeem is to buy back, to pay a price. 
so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now just let's just unpack that. God sent forth his son to redeem sinners so that they could be his sons. It is our nature to want to protect our children. If you are a parent, you don't choose to do that. It's instinctive. And that you're always on the lookout for danger. You're seeking to protect your child. And one of the greatest um, heartaches of a parent is when, for some reason, you are not able to. Some disease uh, comes in and, and brings a calamity or an accident or something happens and you are unable to protect them from that. Well, think of what it means that God sent forth his son to suffer to suffer the humiliation and condescension of life as a man, to suffer and die under the sentence of divine condemnation. The Father sent Jesus, his Son, to a cross. Isaiah 53 says it was the will, it was his, the Father's will to crush him. Now you just, what parent operates like that? Why would the father do that? Doesn't he love his son? And the answer, of course, is, is he dearly loves his son. When, when the father speaks in the Gospels, he says the same thing. This is my dearly beloved son. Listen to him. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. He loves his son as he loves himself. So why would he send his son to this excruciating suffering? And the answer is because he also loved you. And so when the Father determined, Father, Son, and Spirit in, in eternity past determined to save you, to elect, to choose you in love and to make you an adopted child, in that choice is a choice then to send his Son to suffer to make that adoption happen, to make it possible. The father choosing to crush his son. Now, I just want you to think about the dynamic of that decision. Uh, imagine you have uh, two sons. And one son was uh, an extremely thoughtful, kind, gracious, obedient, faithful, loving child. You've dreamt about children like this. All right, just imagine that just sort of defined the way he did. He was just always, he was happy to obey. He was thoughtful. He was a servant. You just couldn't believe you were his parent. And, and, and it was such a joy to, to be a parent of this child. And then you had another son, a wicked, rebellious, just hateful child. In some ways, you would say an evil child. He seemed intent to do whatever he could to disobey the rules, to dishonor you, to wreck, uh, to just to wreak havoc and chaos in the house. He, he made it clear that he hated you. As a young man, he, he made friends with other wicked men and, and uh, was intent on shaming you, shaming your name, flouting his wicked deeds in your face. That's how he just lived. But then he was caught committing some great crime, and he was found guilty, and the penalty was death. And, and uh, being a parent, you reached out, and you, you went and visited him in prison. But he was full of anger and hatred and spite and, and spat curses at you when you went to show kindness to him. 
Well, here's the question. Would you be willing to send your loving, obedient, faithful child to death in your wicked son's place? Because that's the choice the father made. To send his perfectly obedient, gracious, loving child, his son, Jesus, to death for you, the rebel, the mocker of God, the one who hated God, who was intent to shame his name, disobey his rule, wreak havoc in his world, and the father chose to send his son while we were yet sinners. That's the impact of that phrase. Christ, the perfect son, died for you, for me, the rebellious sons, the rebellious daughters. And he died in order to redeem us. He did not die simply so that we don't have to suffer the penalty that we deserve. But he died so that we would be adopted into the family of God, that we would be brought back home, that we would regain sonship status and privilege as the children of God. Jesus came to make the Father's eternal choice a reality for you and for me by offering up his life, by shedding his blood so that you, the wicked son, and you, the rebellious daughter, that you could be his brothers and sisters. I hope the, the, the love of God in this surprises you again. It's the most astonishing thing and the, the fruit then of that is also overwhelming. When, when adoptive parents go to pick up their newly adopted child, they often bring gifts. In Ephesians 1, Paul reminds us of the, the riches that the Father has lavished upon us, his newly adopted children. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. These are the, the, the riches that God brings and gives to you by virtue of your adoption, by virtue of the Father giving you uh, to Jesus Christ. Uh, these, these gifts, of course, come through him, by virtue of union with him. But as, as his son and daughter, the Father blesses you with redemption, bought back from death and sin and hell and the forgiveness of all your trespasses, all of them forgiven, gone as far as the east is from the west. Even the most vile, perverse, wicked things that you've thought or said or done, forgiven. That's the, the gift that we read about here, the forgiveness of your trespasses. And according to the riches of his grace, not, not meagerly as some parental duty, but out of the depth of the Father's eternal love for you, according to the riches of the grace of God, the superabounding grace of God. He lavishes forgiveness upon you. And those riches then, not just redemption and forgiveness, but the incredible status of, of being a true son. And, and the evidence of that true status is found in that you are made an heir of God, an heir with Christ. You see, we're not just saved from something, from sin, from death. We're saved to something, and it's the to something that is the most glorious. Uh, angels in heaven do not have sin, but they will never have the status of sonship. 
They'll never have the privilege of being children of God. I, I remember uh, when I was uh, back right after a college, I was driving a truck uh, for uh, Vermann and Oil Company. And, uh, and just notice, in one, a great company, Jerry Vermann was a great, a great uh, boss. But I noticed that the boys, uh, the Vermannon boys, had a different status than the rest of us, even though one of them uh, was younger than, than I was by just a few years, and we could, we could joke. But end of the day, I was, uh, I was just uh, an employee, and, uh, and Brad was the boss's son, and that was going to change everything. I remember once uh, making a, a delivery, oil delivery, out to a gas station in Ada, and I'm unpacking the things and bringing it in, and David Vanandel comes out. Uh, about my age, and we, we had a conversation, and uh, he was um, managing this gas station. And, um, and, I, and I walked away just marveling uh, the difference that uh, David Vanandel, his life was going to be fundamentally different th- than mine. Not by virtue of anything other than his father. And I don't care how long you work for Amway, uh, you're, you're not going to be David Vanandel. It just happened to a nice guy. He was gracious and, and kind, and, um, but he was a vanandal, and that was going to change everything about his life. Well, that is just minuscule compared to the status and the privilege that belong to you as a child of God. Angels envy you. You're a, you're a son, a daughter of God. And that changes everything about you, specifically your future. David was just a manager of a gas station. That's not really a lofty position. But he knew, and I knew, he was not going to be managing gas stations for the rest of his life. You might be doing something mundane, something that the world thinks to be a very small thing, something that you recognize is not really that big of a deal. But you know and I know that that does not define your future. That does not define your life. You're not going to stay doing the mundane. You are destined for glory. Glory of sonship. That's the incredible truth of adoption. Paul writes in Galatians 4, 7, So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God, an heir. There's a vast difference between a servant and a son. In Paul's day, uh, to be adopted into a family would often happen specifically so that the, the, the owner of some business could have heirs, someone to pass the family name and tradition and business onto, the family possessions. Well, that's what's happened to you in Jesus Christ. Everything, you see, that belongs to God, we have rightful claim to as his children. We are heirs in Christ, heirs of God, heirs to all that belongs to God. So what what belongs to God? Everything belongs to God. One of the things that I uh, so enjoyed in studying this doctrine is, uh, and the Puritans particularly did this, talked about how everything in this world is ours as Christians, as the children of God. Ours by right. Everyone else, in a sense, is renting. But children, God's children have a right to, not by themselves, but through Jesus Christ, the blessings, a rightful ownership. 
Jeremiah Burroughs says, Whatsoever thou art in this world, Jesus Christ is not heir to more than thou hast interest in. Willard says, All that a believer enjoys in this life, he may truly call his own as he is a child of God. They, that, they have a spiritual right to all they possess and all their enjoyments are theirs by the new covenant. You can enjoy the good gifts of God as a child of God. Gifts received from your heavenly Father. And as a child of God, you have, you have right to enjoy them and use them for his glory. It's, it's an amazing concept. But of course, the ultimate gift of uh, our inheritance is the gift of God himself. Paul mentions this in Romans chapter 8. And just listen to these words. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of what? Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Friends, orphans are often the poorest people in the world. Uh, not primarily because they have no or almost no material possessions. They're the poorest in the world because they don't have a family. They don't have a father who knows them and claims them as his very own. A, a father who takes their well-being as his responsibility, who takes uh, their future as his mission. A father who loves them in a particular, protective, fatherly way. Someone who will love them no matter what they do. Simply because he's their father and they're their child. And that's, that's the poverty of an orphan. And when we were lost in our sins, spiritual orphans, that was our poverty. Paul says we were without hope and without God in this world. We had no father who claimed us and named us. Who paid particular attention to our well-being and, and who took on himself the responsibility of our eternal glory and joy. And yet all that has changed. You see, when, when you were adopted, what you received in the adoption was God himself as your heavenly father. God himself as your heavenly father. John 20, verse 27, 17, Jesus says there that as he's resurrected now and, and, and says to Mary, I'm ascending to my father and your father. To my God and your God. Jesus wants us to know that his father is now our father by virtue of his redeeming work. A father who loves us when we are at our very worst, but a father who's not ashamed to be called our God, who, who claims us as our own and takes our future joy as his responsibility. A father who promises that he will never abandon us, he'll never leave us, he's not ashamed of us, who gives us every spiritual blessing in Christ freely and lavishly. Sinclair Ferguson says there is no higher self-image that a Christian can have and no doctrine which will more readily help him enjoy the life of faith. You see, friends, it's a great tragedy when Christians live as though they don't have a father. A tragedy when Christians live without being able to embrace and receive the incredible love of God, their father. I would just encourage you tonight to just ask yourself, 
What's my relationship with God really like? And maybe tonight, uh, if you're not converted, then I would appeal to you that this is what God the Father offers to you in Jesus Christ as you confess your sin, that you receive a God who knows you, loves you, claims you as his very own child. But maybe you, you've been in the church for all your life, and, and yet your, your Christian uh, experience could maybe mostly be defined by duty, by trying, by believing, hoping. But have you ever just embraced and received the love of God, your Father, for you? Have you ever thought about the difference it would make in your life if you could actually trust that your Father knows what you need, that your Father will provide, your Father will care for you? He's able to protect you? Paul Tripp writes, don't things often seem to be out of control? Yes. Doesn't it often look like the bad guys are winning? It does. Haven't you cried, why me? Or wept at the suffering of another? Don't you feel lost in the crowd? The custodian of a small and relatively meaningless life? Don't you daily face your powerlessness to change even yourself? I think we would answer yes. Well, there is comfort in the moment of your greatest mystery. Your destiny is not in your hand. It's not in the hands of other people. You are held in the hands of your heavenly Father who rules everything. You are a child of the King of Kings and you live in the shadow of his wing. And the way we honor our Father is by believing that truth. The way we honor God is to accept the reality of our adopted status, that we are children of God, all because of love, all through Jesus Christ, the one who came, the only begotten Son of God, to rescue all the Father's alienated children and by uniting us to himself to bestow on you the reality of the glory of being the forever child of God. I just encourage you this week to take that truth into the reality of where you live. And how would your life be affected if you really embraced and received the Father's love for you, his child? Let's pray. Oh, God, our Father in heaven, there are doubts and fears in this room, in our hearts. I thank you, Lord, that it is your pleasure to convince us of your love. And you've done that by giving us your son who redeemed us so that we could become the children of God. Lord, I thank you that you invite us now to a table which is a visible evidence and testimony from God of your adopting, redeeming love for us in Christ. That this is the table that belongs to the family, the family of God. And that we have a right to this table, not because of anything in us, but because of your electing love, your redeeming love. 
because Jesus Christ gave his life to make us your children. And so that as we come believing in him, Lord, we have a rightful place as as you are the God who has adopted us. And so we come humbly and, and joyfully, we come believing. Oh, Father, I pray that as we taste the bread and the wine, we would taste the goodness of our Father. And our hearts would be able to embrace and receive all the love, all the promises, all the rich blessings that are ours as your children. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.